Chainlink has consistently and reliably delivered accurate data on chain, even during extreme network congestion and market volatility. So, you know, it's an Oracle network that you know works and that you know is already used by the largest protocols. And so therefore it has a significant network effect of basically this whole ecosystem of users have already proven the reliability of Chainlink. And so, you know, are you going to choose and take on the risk of some uh, unknown and little used Oracle protocol or are you going to use the industry standard? And the answer is you're going to use the industry standard. Hello, investors. This is Danny with Investorly. At the intersection of education and opportunity, we empower you to invest early. In episode 22, we welcome back the one and only Chainlink God, the community ambassador for Chainlink, the decentralized Oracle network. We learn about his take on the growth of the Chainlink team, Chainlink CCIP, and superlinear staking, and take community questions. The Investorly podcast is brought to you by Dayslice our home for all scheduling, payment, and website solutions in one place. Learn more today and sign up for free at dayslice.com. To stay informed of our community-driven podcast and receive our insightful weekly newsletter, subscribe at investorly.substack.com. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. The space continues to evolve at rapid pace. Chainlink has been, you know, core to it. And then yet it looks like it can be quite confusing and confounding for so many Chainlink Marines uh, and supporters of Chainlink. And so it seems like to me that, you know, Chainlink is securing more in TVL. The progress that is being made is seen on a number of levels. uh, And yet the price action has been decidedly pretty negative. So maybe just to get us going, can you kind of help us understand I mean, set the stage for where we are and what's gone on over the last, I don't know, nine months, a year. Yeah, I think to kind of set some context, um, Chainlink as a project is uh, operating essentially with kind of a 10-year timeline, effectively, where uh, Chainlink is aiming to power the next generation of contractual agreements that will inevitably power the global economy. While the current kind of crypto environment that we're in currently tends to favor more short-term trends or short-term high-level yields. And so, you know, that's not a justification or anything, but just kind of some set some context. But within Chainlink's own approach to kind of capturing market share and becoming the industry standard, um, it's really focused on expanding growth. And expanding growth effectively comes down to lowering initial user costs today so that you're able to generate a large network effect of users. And so that when the inflection point... Uh, comes when smart contracts are becoming massively adopted at the institutional scale, it'll already be well accepted at that point that using Chainlink within your system um, is basically a requirement at that point. So it's really about generating a very, very strong network effect. And that comes down to effectively subsidizing service in order to become the global standard. And so um, it's essentially kind of a very, very long-term, not long-term, but like a uh, very pragmatic approach to capturing market dominance. And so currently the economics of the network is kind of uh, in its initial stages, I would say. And with continual improvements to the network and the services, uh, the quality of the services and specific economic systems like explicit staking, where Link will get locked up and basically be the right to earn revenue in the network, that'll introduce a whole basically evolution of the network's economics effectively. But, But in my personal opinion, it's much more important beca- to become the global dominant industry standard today um, because once you have the industry standard, you can adjust the tokenomics to whatever you need because you have access to all these revenue opportunities. But if you just have tokenomics, but you don't have market share, you don't have market dominance, you don't have network effects, you know, it doesn't really matter because uh, having tokenomics is not the product. You, know, you need to have a good product and you need to have actual established market dominance because at that point, uh, we're in a state where your protocol is at such a large scale and has so ingrained eventually within society that uh, the tokenomics uh, can really generate serious amounts of revenue in the future. But it doesn't make sense to extract a ton of revenue today, you know, uh, destroy Chainlink's potential of generating a network effect, all to generate you know, what little revenue exists today in the smart contract space. Because you know, the smart contract space is very, very, very small compared to what the opportunity is at scale. So it's really optimizing for long-term organic uh, revenue rather than short-term Ponzi-level yield, which is very entertaining and fun, but not 
you know, very sustainable. Thank you very much for that clarity on that, Chainlink God. Uh, you know, there's there's still some questions in regards to uh, the uh, January 1st, uh, Sergey came out with this presentation and he, um, shortly after that, the a lot of Marines noticed that there were no more, uh, quote, dumping on the exchanges, right, of link tokens. Uh, and everybody thought, you know, oh, this is moon time, you know. Can you talk in regards to that for maybe some, you know, link Marines out there, link holders that aren't aware of, like, the team dumping on exchanges, uh, things like that, and how and how and maybe why it stopped from the Chainlink team? Yeah, so I don't necessarily have, well, I think in general people kind of misconstrue what the token movements are really for. It's really multiple different components. Primarily, it's for basically what I described before in terms of subsidizing Oracle networks. So those link tokens basically get moved from Genesis wallets, put into kind of a, a side reserve and then that is used to basically help bootstrap Oracle networks in addition to user fees. So uh, this basically lowers the user costs of Oracle networks, and it basically grows the network effect. So those are tokens that are moved during these token movements, but directly to nodes over time. Uh, the other portions is effectively like a, a create like a what, what I can only assume is basically the team generating a treasury uh, in order to basically survive any future bear market. We kind of saw this in the past in 2018 where projects kept uh, their token allocations, they didn't do anything with them, then the bear market came and they had absolutely no runway and they had to basically get their team in development and that seriously affected and hurt their project. Uh, we kind of seen with like the Ethereum Foundation, they initially diversified their treasury into other assets in order to have a more predictable runway for development and not have to worry about whatever the market volatility is going to end up doing. So I think... It's kind of a fallacy to assume that all the token movements means it's just all being sold at once. Not to say that none of it was being sold, but it's all for reinvesting into the growth of the network effectively. So short-term price action is as, as a result of basically bootstrapping and growing this network effect today so that in the future, Chainlink can become the industry standard and generate much more revenue. So it's effectively establishing Chainlink as the dominant industry standard, subsidizing these Oracle networks and ensuring that the team can continue to expand to meet user demand and that they have a uh, have a runway so they can actually continue developing without needing to downsize because the crypto market crashed ninety percent or something. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen in that regard. So that's it, kind of like a nuanced aspect to it. Um, some Oracle networks now are becoming more profitable based just on user fees, particularly as Chainlink keeps going more multi-chain. But uh, Oracle networks will link token movements basically have helped bootstrap uh, the Chainlink network effectively. So that's that's kind of my perspective on it. I see. And it's still, well, and um, that's smart because, uh, you know, crypto is still in a very speculative state. So you can't really rely on uh, your assets uh, price action in order to build the team. But speaking of building uh, the building out the team, it seems that that chain link has been on been on a massive hiring spree looking for, I believe I could be off with a number, but 500 employees, additional employees in the coming months or, or possibly over the year. Uh, there's been a lot of new hires coming on. Uh, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, uh, came on as an advisor recently. Um, what's uh, what's your opinion on this massive kind of hiring? And uh, also uh, dive into maybe some of the people that they have been hiring. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think that the, the current Chainlink Labs team is about 300 to 400 people, I believe. And so that's a lot of different engineers, integration experts, researchers, and what have you. And the team wants to expand to 600 to 700 around the end of the year. So it's a significant hypergrowth type phase. And so to kind of assist in scaling Chainlink Labs as an organization, then uh, having these advisors like Eric Schmidt um, and, and these other uh, industry experts are basically very, very crucial until uh, basically leveraging their knowledge in order to know how to go through hypergrowth in order to scale Chainlink Labs as an organization. And then the other technical advisors like Dan Bonet will help with like the Chainlink network in order to uh, improve and to scale up the network itself as a protocol. So it's kind of a dual approach of scaling the organization who can then work to scale the network itself until the network is fully self-serve and self-sustaining uh, as like a fully decentralized protocol that exists far beyond anyone working on the team today. So it's kind of it. I think the advisors are very, very impactful in terms of uh, scaling the team in the protocol. So uh, 
yeah, I don't, I don't, some people kind of think of it, it's like, it's, oh, it's just like a kind of a marketing thing. But if it was a marketing thing, you know, the team would keep talking about Eric Schmidt every single week, but it's like, you know, one term annou- uh, time announcement, Eric Schmidt, and then it's just kind of, you know, helping scaling the team because that was kind of the whole point of it. Yeah, it's fascinating to kind of hear about the the amount of people at Chainlink Labs and what they're looking to get to by end of year uh, when you talk about, you know, kind of an explosive growth from a uh, from a management and, uh, and, and business standpoint. When... When we when we think about the hires, like not just Eric coming on board over you know the last quarter or two, you think about like Balaji. Do you think about them? And and I guess this is more of like just your, your thoughts, really. When we when we think about these you know people, and obviously they're helping to grow the business, but do you think that they have real impact um, over a long period, or are they are they there subtly and helping when they when they have some suggestions? Or I mean, how impactful do we really think some of these advisors are? Um, and is it just that we need, um, as you mentioned right off the top, this is like Chainlink looking at a 10-year plan. You're kind of thinking of a decade. Where are we? You know, this is kind of like a two-for-one, but where are we in that plan then? Because I I sometimes even do this where, you know, we've been at this now for a year or two together, uh, Danny and I, thinking about Chainlink and, and when we found it. But so many people are just finding it now or haven't found it yet. So where are we in that 10-year plan? Um, and, and how impactful are these uh, you know, major names that have been hired on as advisors or are participating in the ecosystem? Yeah, I think there's kind of dual pronged. I think a lot of people getting hired on the team are specifically people basically who are needed to help meet user demand for Oracle services. So like that's a lot of engineers. That's a lot of integration specialists. That's a lot of people just straight up meeting the needs of users who want to integrate Chainlink. And the advisors, I think, have had a significant impact in just uh, helping guide you know, what, what services specifically would be needed into the future, how to uh, design you know, protocols like CCIP in a very secure way, uh, helping improve like, the economics of the network as a whole over time. And so I think we're at the, like, the beginning of stages of like, the major impact of having these advisors onboarded. But I, I think it's really kind of guiding the future direction of the organization and of the protocol itself. So it's something that kind of reaps dividends down the line where you know, you're kind of planting the seed now of how to scale in a specific direction and kind of with the help of the advisors, you can kind of direct that in the direction you need to go to uh, significantly uh, scale the organization and the protocol as a whole. So I, I think ultimately we're still in the very early days and early stages uh, for Chainlink's adoption and for the Chainlink ecosystem, but it's kind of crucial that uh, things start moving uh, in the right direction, and it's you know you kind of gain momentum in that direction. So when you're in hypergrowth, you need to make sure that you're very directionally focused, and that's something that the advisors really both a technical perspective and then just a you know an organizational perspective. How do you maintain your values over time? Type situation. Completely understood. And I do. Ha- I know you've answered this question. I'm sure a ton of times, CLG. But I, <laughs> I'm trying to clarify that we're trying to clarify the best questions and the most asked questions from the. The Link Marines uh, amongst uh, crypto Twitter here. Uh, when people say token not needed, Link, whatever, uh, can you clarify on why Chainlink needs Link token and why it's imperative to the Chainlink ecosystem? Yeah, so there's basically multiple different domains. Uh, firstly, the token acts as a way to ensure that the incentives of the network operators, the Oracle nodes, are aligned with the health of the network itself. So when you kind of look at the Bitcoin network, Bitcoin miners are honest and don't collude because they want to maintain their futures and they want to maintain the value of their holdings and their equipment. And so it's the same parallel in terms of the Chainlink network where they're being paid in the native token of the network for which that they don't want to be malicious and destroy their own holdings and destroy all their future revenue uh, cash flows. Um, The Link token also plays a significant role what I mentioned before, of just getting the network off the ground. Um, if you didn't have a token to subsidize services, from very day one, you would have to force users to pay the entire costs of the Oracle network. And you know, everyone knows how expensive like Ethereum transactions are. And so an Oracle network starting without any help, any bootstrapping, any subsidy, would literally never get off the ground. That's why we've never seen an Oracle network without a token, because it just that model doesn't work. Um, so it, like, you need the token in order to even get off the ground in the first place. But then as you are getting going, it's aligning the incentives of network operators. And eventually, with explicit staking, 
Link becomes the right to basically earn revenue within the network and a way to add direct crypto economic security to the Chainlink network. And so um, when people say token not needed, uh, you know, sometimes they're joking. Other times it's because as a end user, you don't necessarily need to use Link to use a dApp. However, that dApp does use Link to pay for Oracle services. So it's just kind of extracted away from the user. Like if you use Ethereum, you know, you need to use it. If you're using Aave, Aave is paying for their Oracle costs in Link, and it's kind of extracted away for you from away from you, but it's still being used in the background. And with explicit staking, then that's a whole other dynamic where the token basically has revenue attached to it. So um, basically, if uh, you don't think that an Oracle network needs a token, then I suggest trying to launch an Oracle network without a token and see how well that goes for you in terms of even ground. Yeah, you put it pretty succinctly right there at the at that last statement. Uh, not too many people or, or uh, projects really uh, want to release uh, or launch it, or when they do, have success doing that. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, one thing. Let's pause to to let and anybody's here. Thank you for joining us. We are speaking with uh, Chainlink God uh, at Investor Leads, a conversation with uh, the podcast. Now, one of the great things about listening here live is that we allow for some community questions. So. Uh, twofold. One, if you want to ask Chainlink God a question yourself, you can definitely request. We'll try to intermittently scatter a few in. But if you have a question and don't necessarily want to come up and ask it yourself and speak, you can also uh, message it to us uh, right here. Just message it to uh, us at Investorly uh, and we can ask it if we have a chance for you. Um, uh, let's get back to it though. So uh, COG, you obviously, you know, we talked about, we've heard about, it's like a 10-year, decade idea. Um, we're always trying to help out with investing early and getting people in. Are we still early to invest in Chainlink at this point as we start to see this hyper-growth phase and where we're headed in the future? Well, I, I want to start off by saying, obviously, not financial advice or anything. Um, in my view, I think that. I kind of see the growth of smart contracts and the growth of Chainlink kind of intertwined, where Chainlink's really powering the growth of smart contracts, and as smart contracts increase, so does Chainlink. So when you look at it from that perspective, and you look at smart contract, the smart contract economy today, you know the one of the predominant uh, use cases in terms of is in terms of DeFi. Um, the decentralized finance ecosystem is about seventy to two hundred billion dollars, uh, depending on how you measure it, and the total addressable market is basically the global economy. And any industry that uses a system of contract uh, between counterparties, between uh, businesses and consumers, between different businesses, between different consumers, um, that's a total adjustable market. And we haven't even touched that yet. Uh, smart contracts today are just in their very early stages. It's a, very, it's a lot of metagames, a lot of uh, arguably Ponzonomics, because we're basically just testing out this infrastructure effectively. We haven't really hit a real-world use case. Yet, like at scale, and so since we haven't hit that scale yet, then in my mind, it's still in the very incredibly early stages. It's it's hard to tell, you know, if the price is going to go up, down, or in circles in the in the next few months or even the next few years. Long term trajectory growth, um, smart contracts as a concept, hybrid smart contracts, you know, blockchains using oracles, the whole combination, it, it's just not being used at scale yet, and so that's kind of the opportunity. Uh, in terms of seeing what other people don't see, people see crypto as like, oh, it's that, you know, it's that money thing. It's it's that, uh, it, it's the the dog coins that people speculate on, and the you know the NFTs that burn down the rainforest. Like th those are the narratives. People don't see uh, crypto as like a new system of cryptographic truth, of a more determinist, deterministic, more transparent and fair economic system. And because that narrative hasn't happened yet, there's kind of a, a disconnect. So. You know, I, I can't say whether something is or isn't a good investment in the short term, but I typically focus on what's likely to, to uh, become ingrained into society in the long term. And in my opinion, that's basically like the golden trio in my mind, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Chainlink. That's really like what I focus on because that's what I see as existing in a decade. But uh, not to say that there aren't other opportunities or, you know, how the crypto ecosystem is going to play out because it could play out in a million different ways. But Regardless, it'll probably be powered by Chainlink. Right. Makes a lot of sense. You mentioned quickly in there DeFi. So uh, 
when we think about, uh, and something we were thinking about is kind of DeFi protocols, and then conversely also some thoughts around uh, CFI, we can get to that. But do you have a favorite DeFi protocol or a couple that you're, uh, you know, I guess, uh, privy to, to liking and using more? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on specifically like what, I'm, what I want to be doing. Uh, I mean, like I've always been a fan of like the underlying financial primitives. So things like Aave just being the underlying money market layer of the ecosystem. I feel like, you know, it, it's so ingrained in the ecosystem and it, they've innovated on so many different products in terms of flash loans. They just had V3. It's been powered by Chainlink price feeds from day one. Like those are very almost simplistic, but very powerful building blocks where it's an application itself, but really it's a money Lego that gets composed into other applications that need liquidity or need to borrow and lend. Um, I've been kind of, following the curve wars over the past year so the curve finance which is like a uh, concentrated liquidity uh, decentralized exchange initially focused on stable coins but expanding out and then uh, kind of the complement convex which is like a uh, kind of a yield booster on top of that i think the the interaction between those two protocols is very interesting it's the tokenomics are uh, it's very interesting to see how it's evolved over time and the revenue that um that liquidity or that uh, stakers are able to generate because stable coins need liquidity and they're willing to pay to get liquidity for their stable coins. But th- those are kind of the most interesting I'd like to watch and to kind of uh, uh, to explore. I've been kind of just, I, I go across and explore different DeFi protocols, but those are the ones that really have caught my eye. Uh, I've, I haven't followed algorithmic stable coins too closely over time, but I do find Frax to be kind of the most interesting type design. But, you know, I'm, I'm always... I'm always on the look for DeFi, different DeFi protocols. Don't necessarily have the time I used to to explore every little diesel and every single protocol, but it's those those are the primary ones that have always catch my eye. Absolutely, and uh, we at Investorly are always doing the same thing as well. Always looking for uh, very solid, stable uh, DeFi protocols or decentralized finance. Um, I know it's kind of an ironic notion because you have uh, a DeFi many DeFi projects, and you can uh, put those DeFi project tokens into a CFI platform or centralized finance. What are your thoughts on centralized finance and also CFI versus DeFi? I think it depends on what you use CFI for. I mean, CFI, CFI in the sense of it being an on-ramp and an off-ramp because you need a connection between fiat currency and cryptocurrency. So CFI kind of provides that bridge between these two worlds. But there's also CFI, which is like a... Uh, a simplified version of DeFi in terms of CeFi is basically able to generate yield in the DeFi ecosystem for you, and they basically manage everything for you. So it's custodial and it's trusted, but they basically navigate the DeFi ecosystem and earn yield for you on your cryptographic, your your crypto assets. So I think it has utility, particularly for people who don't want to dive into every DeFi protocol and do every, you know, hold their assets in their own uh, hardware wallet and take on that you know, that self responsibility that not everyone necessarily wants to take on, but I do think that CFI generally has a place in the ecosystem because not everyone's going to want to take on that risk. So I, th- I think it's uh, it's if you want to really take finance into your own hands, then you really want to explore it on your own and use DeFi. But CFI is something that's just not going to go away, and it's something that's becoming increasingly prevalent with the general population. It's kind of like an entry point into crypto as a whole. So I think it's net beneficial, but it's not something where you want to store your life savings on, in my opinion. So you obviously prefer DeFi, but um, you're not completely opposed to CeFi, especially for people that are that are a little more new to crypto and things. And, you know, the interfaces and, and different nuances of DeFi isn't exactly as user-friendly across most, most platforms. Uh, is DeFi that you prefer? You don't have to answer, but I was just curious. Yeah, I mean, I can... I'm not like super well, ver- like I don't use CFI that much besides getting uh, dollars in and out of the crypto ecosystem. But I will say I don't trust Nexo at all. That's the one I would never use. But in terms of most legitimate, I think Celsius is probably the most legitimate, but I've also never used it. So, you know, I can't really speak fully on it. If I want to earn yield, I go straight for DeFi. And if I want to uh, cash in and out, then I go through a centralized exchange. Yeah. So, I'm not surprised by some of those responses and they make a lot of sense. Uh, um, it, it does feel like there has been some evolution in the C5 products, specifically when you talk about if you were 
uh, to, to like one or, or, or suggest one to, to really dive into, you'd look at Celsius. And obviously, Celsius X has been something that's come to market over, I don't know, the last couple of months. Can you share uh, a little bit more about Celsius X and, and why it's valuable and how Chainlink plays a role in it? Yeah, so Celsius X is, they kind of brand it as like the DeFi arm of Celsius. And so they're basically kind of trying to bridge between their centralized services and the DeFi ecosystem. And one of those products is the Celsius X bridge. So it's a token bridge uh, between Ethereum and Polygon, Cardano and Dogecoin that basically allows you to bridge between these different networks, uh, initially using Celsius as custody, but they're using Chainlink proof of as like an additional layer of security so that they can't mint more wrapped tokens on a new chain than they have in collateral. Meaning that if somebody deposits um, you know, Card- ADA Cardano uh, into Celsius, kind of this, this vault, then they can only mint up to that amount on Ethereum or Polygon effectively. So if the Chainlink proof reserve says that that collateral actually exists. And so that's kind of like an additional layer of protection. And over time, uh, this bridge will decentralize and begin using the uh, cross-chain interoperability protocol, or CCIP, which is a cross-chain communication protocol that's being developed uh, on the Chainlink network. And so this will effectively provide a way for people to bridge between networks in a manner that's secured by Chainlink, and that's connected to a CFI service, uh, effectively. So it's kind of a, uh, a, br- a bridging, so to speak, between the CFI and DeFi worlds. I think that was actually really... Uh great explanation and and helpful for a lot of listeners. I mean, one of the awesome things about when we do this is that the podcast goes out to a lot of people that maybe are not using crypto Twitter or Twitter, but the way that many people in a Twitter space may. And so when you explain it like that for uh, Web2 users or people that are just getting into it, uh, it can be very helpful. So I appreciate that. I know I said we were going to take community questions, so let's do that because I've got a bunch through of messages. So here's some community questions, and then if you want to request, we'll take one or two and then uh, some more of our own questions. But starting uh, with Alex McClendon, thank you, Alex, for the question. Uh, Chainlink God, here's the question. From a price action perspective, why do these other tokens that use Link do so much better short term? I mean, there's a myriad of reasons you can't fully explain why the market does what it does. I think that uh, the crypto ecosystem is driven heavily by narratives, and the narratives right now are kind of focused on specific L1s, on specific DeFi primitives, and on uh, specific trends that come up over time. And so it's not necessarily uh, fully tied to the fundamentals, or certainly not the long-term fundamentals, but kind of like what the hot narrative and the current narrative is. You know, if, if you can give out a uh, high APY yield fueled by token printer subsidies, you know, then the market's going to love your project. Whether that's sustainable in the long term doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, not, not to say that good projects also haven't performed well as well, but I think the market is kind of, my opinion, just discounting the uh, middleware layer of the ecosystem. And the, the chain like uh, uh, economics are still kind of a work in progress and kind of still evolving. But you know, when you have a new crypto project and it's, you know, market cap is extremely small and then it's throwing out yield subsidies and gets a lot of users and gets a large TVL, then the market's going to like that narrative and that's going to play into that. So, you know, there's a myriad of different reasons. There isn't going to be a single reason. And my reason is certainly not the only reason. It's just my view. But, you know, that's kind of my perspective. I think over the long term, Chainlink is kind of like the meta play of smart contracts as a whole. It's just something that. Uh, is being taken with a you know multi-year game plan and not necessarily just pumping out Ponzi yields to get users today, but maybe not necessarily building a moat. Yeah, got it. Let's take one more that I've gotten, and thank you guys for for sending me them in the DMs. I'm trying to keep up with a, a number of them and try to cycle through them. Uh, this one comes from Bear Market Grills, who asks, "How does Chainlink ensure that the nodes in a Don, which by the way is a decentralized Oracle network?" Uh, aren't using the same data source or API when reporting data uh, effectively then which would be ruining the decentralized nature of a decentralized Oracle network. Yeah. So in that case, every Oracle node within specifically like a price view is configured to connect to multiple data sources. And so if a data provider goes down or starts misreporting, then that Oracle node would also begin uh, to go down or misreporting as well. So it become uh, immediately obvious. So the Chainlink team kind of works with node operators 
today in this current state to kind of ensure that the highest quality services are the high quality uh, um, data sources are being used and both the node operators and the Chainlink Labs team are monitoring both the performance of the nodes and the performance of each individual uh, data provider to ensure that a consistently high quality of data is always being delivered on chain. So there's different ways you can construct a DAWN. And in the long term, it's very designed to be basically self-serve of like you choose the nodes and you choose the data sources and then you configure it to meet your specific needs. And so Chainlink Oracle's in, in a uh, uh, chain like nodes and are basically service providers. And so over time you kind of defined what your, what sources defined uh, truth for you, what, what set of sources you want to aggregate from, and then those nodes will deliver it to you. And if they break their SLA agreements, that's kind of where the stake link comes into play where they'll get slashed for not actually delivering the data from the source that they were supposed to, or, or a collection of sources that they were supposed to. So it's kind of today, it's really economic incentives. They'll lose the revenue they'll lose their opportunity to generate more revenue in the future as a node operator if they don't properly use uh, a collection of sources that they uh, should be using. Um, and then the future becomes much more explicit with staking. So it's kind of like a multi-tiered, multi-pronged approach. Fantastic. Love the explanations. That's why we love having you here. Uh, conversations. Thank you guys for, for the questions and keep them coming. Uh, to mix in, let's get someone who is up here on stage. All right, let's try Perseus. Perseus, do you have a question? Hey, how's it going, guys? Yeah, thanks Thanks Very for uh, doing this, Chainlink God. So, so question for you. As we look at the future, most of the market would generally agree it's going to be multi-chain for layer ones. Yet all of the Chainlink community generally agrees we see Link, you know, monopolizing the Oracle market in the future. What's what's fundamentally different between how you kind of see layer ones developing multi-chain in the future versus um, the the market that Oracle's compete in that's going to allow Link to just monopolize? I would say that the architecture of the Chainlink network isn't actually a singular network like a blockchain is. It's actually more precisely a framework for building Oracle networks. So a blockchain is kind of a monolithic or it could be a modular, but it's basically a singular structure that comes to global consensus and has a defined set of rules. And if you don't like those rules, well, you could try and get social consensus to change it or use a different chain. With Chainlink, it's not a singular global network, but rather a collection of heterogeneous networks where if a certain specific Oracle network in the Chainlink ecosystem doesn't suit your needs, you can use a different network, or you can construct your own Chainlink network with whatever nodes and data sources and security parameters and you know whatever budget you have, you can basically set up an Oracle network to meet your needs. So I think that's kind of like the fundamental difference. It's Chainlink network's not necessarily a network uh, in a sense like it's a singular monolithic thing, but it's more of like a framework. And so the, in, within the Chainlink ecosystem, there's about 900 different uh, Oracle networks operating, uh, providing sources of data and providing computation, but uh, increasingly over time, uh, users can basically define exactly how they want their Oracle network to be set up and work with other users to set up kind of a, a source of truth for whatever resources they need. So I think that's kind of like the fundamental difference of like people can opt in and out of different chain link networks. There's no singular monolithic network controlled uh, by a single set of nodes. Yeah, that's that's great. Thank you. Thanks, Mercedes, for the for the great question. We're going to uh, be taking community questions up here on stage now. We'll bring you back uh, in a little bit. Uh, for some final ones, but keep them coming through the messages. Uh, one last one through the messages, and then we'll get back to uh, Danny and myself. And, th and this one is just simply, Chainlink God, have you ever had the opportunity to chat or meet with Sergey? Well, I've, I've, I can't say that I've ever, uh, I would love to be able to meet him in person. And I think that getting that opportunity at SmartCon, I think would be, that'd be kind of a surreal experience, <laughs> in my opinion. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping for SmartCon is basically my response. <laughs> Amazing. It's funny because listening to you say that, um, and thanks to the question to uh, Board Mummy uh, online, but listening to you say that, I think there's a lot of people listening to this conversation right now that would say the exact same thing, but directed with you in re in replacement of Sergey in that comment and sentence. Um, but we're going to talk about SmartCon in a second. Let's go to uh, thank you guys for the community questions. And um, Danny. Uh, take it away. Yeah, sure thing, Mike. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, CLG, a, a lot of Chainlink Unplugged events have been going around. Uh, and speaking of these events, uh, such as SmartCon, have you been going to these events in, in real life? And um, and what are your thoughts on them? 
Personally, I haven't. I think, yeah, I mean, I think they're, I think they're great. I think that like they're a very good educational resource for people kind of, uh, meeting other people uh, in terms of kind of who are interested in Chainlink and in terms of learning more about Web3 and learning more about Chainlink. I'm kind of, my domain is kind of focused in terms of like the Twitter ecosystem in terms of educating people about Web3. And I think, I mean, there's kind of like a security risk attached to it, if I'm being honest, a little bit like going somewhere local. But, you know, with going to like kind of an event, I think that's kind of a very different type situation. But I think that they're a great resource for people. And I think it's a great it's, it's like a great entry point for people into crypto and into the chain like Eagle. So I think it's generally a good educational resource. I want to dive into that at just another uh, level because not just the Chainlink Unplug series that's t- kind of taking place globally at this point, uh, but when we think about the in real life uh, meetups, uh, conventions, conferences, what has your experience been uh, to the ones that you have attended meeting the different Chainlink uh, supporters? investors, Marines in person, and maybe what's been, uh, you know, one of your biggest surprises, uh, for you or for them? Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the biggest surprises that like, I'm not, I'm not a frog. I'm not like two inches tall, but no, but it's always (laughs) been a, it's been a great experience. Uh, for the most part, I think that I've met a lot of different people in the Chandler community, met people in the DeFi community, met people in the like VC community, met people on the Chainlink Labs team. And so it's always been uh, a good time kind of meeting up with them, talking to them in person. It's very different uh, than like DMing somebody or tweeting with someone or just, um, yeah, kind of, kind of an online conversation. It's, I feel like it's more, it's more humanizing and it's more personal when it's in person. So it's always been a unique experience and I'm just kind of, uh, I'm, I'm always, I'm always flattered when somebody kind of, somebody comes up to me and wants to you know, I get introduced to somebody and then they introduce me to somebody else and it's kind of like a, a continuous uh, train. But <laughs> it, it's, always, it's always a great time to meet people and I'm always very, very appreciative of their, of their feedback and of, their, uh, of the love they give me. So yeah, it's, it's always been a great time. Uh, amazing. Uh, confirmation right here on the Investorly Podcast. Chainlink God is not a frog when you meet him, just to know. So uh, we have confirmed that. We can now wrap this up. Uh, now, in all seriousness, you mentioned SmartCon in, in passing. So want to kind of push back to all the amazing announcements that we heard during uh, the last SmartCon. And we do know now that next, uh, you know, the next Smart con- Contract Summit will be September 7th and 8th. And it will be uh, an event that could, for the first time that I can remember, be attended in person uh, and not just virtual. So this year, September 7th and 8th uh, is the next SmartCon Summit. Uh, I take it based on what we've heard, you'll be there, Chainlink God? Yeah, that's correct. Amazing. So anybody listening, you know, you have some, uh, you have ample time to kind of make your plans to uh, attend the SmartCon uh, Summit this year. If you'd like to in person, of course, it will be virtual as well. Uh, But speaking of last SmartCon, uh, so many major announcements came from it. Uh, I mean, every SmartCon, it feels like at this point, there are major announcements, but Keepers, CCIP, um, and so on. What really has stuck out to you from uh, last SmartCon's announcements and what got you most excited about what we've seen from that point to this point? Yeah, I think there's always great speakers at SmartCon every year. And I think this past one was definitely just in terms of uh, the different products, like basically the PMs kind of coming up and explaining the different products. And so I think that there was... Uh, like the presentation from like Ben Chan talking about like CCIP at a little bit more technical level. And I thought that was uh, very interesting and very intriguing to kind of see how that system is going to kind of play out. And from that point, it kind of really got me thinking about all the different opportunities and different ways that cross-chain smart contracts can really be used in this infrastructure. Uh, So that kind of like uh, created like a light bulb in my head. I think that also, like, I mean, that was like the first time that we uh, saw keepers at mainnet uh, being announced there. And I think there was also the, the Ari Jules uh, presentation on FSS as well, which hasn't had uh, too much focus lately uh, beyond like the Arbitrum uh, announcement that Arbitrum is working with uh, Chainlink to integrate uh, FSS, which was kind of known for a little while, but was good to see a confirmation. Um, so yeah, I, I think CCIP and FSS are kind of the big, it's really like using Chainlink, not for price feeds, not just for data, but for off-chain computation and for cross-chain interoperability, which is not always things that people think of Oracle's doing, or at least we doing, but it kind of really, it, it, it like opens your mind of what Oracle's can really be used for. It's not just 
price data, but it's everything that a blockchain can't do. Chainlink is like the other half supporting it with off-chain services. And uh, keeping going with like the SmartCon uh, conversation coming up in September, what is there a speaker that you're looking forward to the most that maybe uh, you don't know of or hasn't been announced that you think would be, oh man, this, this person would be absolutely amazing besides Sergey, obviously. And also, uh, is there uh, a feature or, or something you're looking forward to the most? Yeah, I mean, Sergey is going to be like a given <laughs> there. I think it would be interesting to hear from like some of the advisors that did Bology. I know he presented last time. I think Eric Schmidt would be pretty sweet. Um, just kind of hearing their thoughts, you know, not just Chainlink, but smart contracts and Web3 and the whole ecosystem as a whole, uh, since they're kind of, you know, historically more focused on Web2. So it'd be interesting to hear their perspective. But yeah, I think that would be kind of the most thing uh, to hear from. And, you know, I, I imagine something will be talked about CCIP and staking since that's kind of rolling out in the near future. So, um, I, I expect that there'll be probably more information about those services as well there, which is always always something good to hear about. Uh, don't mean to put you in the corner here. Are you going to be speaking at SmartCon? I'm not planned for it, no. <laughs> but I'll definitely be there. Well, that is a disservice to SmartCon already, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, so I, I'd like to move on to... Um, to NFTs. I know uh, Mike is very excited already for this one, but uh, first of all, what happened to the gravel NFT? Do you still have it? I still have my gravel and I still have my shovels. Oh man, he's. I, I thought I heard you landscaping earlier. So that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, so how does, uh, in regards to NFTs and Chainlink, how does Chainlink implement themselves into the NFC, uh, NFT uh, ecosystem? And what are its functions and, and features that, that help uh, NFTs? Yeah, so there's really two ways. The most predominant way is the Chainlink VRF, or verifiable random function. Uh, because blockchains and smart contracts don't have native access to randomness, Chainlink VRF basically provides a solution to access a provably fair and verifiably random source of RNG. And that's important because if you're minting an NFT collection and you want to make sure that people get a randomly selected or um, that randomly generated NFT, then you need to be able to prove that it that the distribution was actually random. People were picked fairly because we've seen NFT distributions where it was like either like a manipulatable source of randomness, like a block hash, or it was just they said it was random, but you know you just had to trust them, and it turns out oh look the team just minted themselves you know, 10 of the most rare NFTs, you know, with VRF, you could prove and you could verify, okay, this distribution, you know, my rare NFT was actually rare, you know, it wasn't just given to me or it wasn't just given to, uh, to the team or someone popular. So that's a really large domain we see VRF being used in is a lot of VRF, a lot of NFT mints, like a uh, mutant apes VRF was used in a lot of different NFT projects. The, the other one is in terms of dynamic NFTs. So a lot of NFTs are like static images or uh, yeah, static like profile picture images, uh, but NFTs are really kind of a file format standard. Effectively, it can represent anything, and so you can have NFTs that can evolve and change over time based on external data. So there's been some chain linked NFTs where it's basically tracking the performance of like a sports player. So as they perform in the game, your NFT has its traits updated, and it can change its image based on different milestones. You know, this can even play into real-world assets getting tokenized uh, eventually and having the different properties about that asset being tracked in the NFT and the ownership along with it as well. So uh, dyna dynamic NFTs is kind of like a whole other field of NFTs that haven't really been explored yet. But, you know, because it involves off-chain data, then you need an Oracle in order to facilitate that. And, of course, Chainlink is the most decentralized and high-quality uh, source of external data that you could use. So those are really the two big domains Chainlink's being used for. So it's amazing. Danny mentions that uh, I have di dove quite deep into the NFTs over the last year or so, let's say. Um, and those two functions you talk about with the VRF, so important as someone that watches the space and, and sees the need for that real verifiable randomness function, because you see it all the time with different projects that don't incorporate it and how it leads to a lot of shady business that happens. Uh, and then you talk about the dynamic function, which is really an untapped uh, segment of NFTs that, you know, I was privy to hearing a conversation around at one of these Chainlink Unplugged events uh, over the past couple of months. In your opinion, do you think that idea of the dynamic uh, aspect of NFTs will catch on 
with the space in 2022? Or do you think this is something that is uh, just not really paid attention to and is going to take more time? Because, uh, you know, clearly the the NFTs have come out and this idea of digital authentication for uh, art and so forth have have come forward and, and taken, I guess, the entire world by by storm this year, last year, and, and grown massively. So, I mean, this dynamic function is super intriguing to learn more about, but do you think it will actually catch on over the next year or so? I think, I mean, there was a recent Chainlink blog post about dynamic NFTs exploring them, and there was a tweet thread, and it got a lot of engagement and it got a lot of attention. So I think that it's still probably early days for it. I don't know if it's necessarily this year. It's hard to tell, you know, what, what, what the market's going to think is the next trendy thing. But I think that there are there is a lot of interest. And I think that I'm not sure how much more demand there is for another 10K uh, NFT profile picture. We paid someone on Fiverr to go mint these. Um, not that that's what every NFT project is, but uh, that's kind of a common theme. And I think that's dynamic NFTs is kind of another way to inject kind of excitement and community engagement more directly. I mean, NFT projects are kind of largely about the community, but dynamic NFTs makes things like the connection between the, the user and the NFT itself kind of more personal and more more engaging. So I think that there will be some NF, dynamic NFTs projects launching that will probably generate pretty significant communities. And I don't know if it'll be on the scale of like Bored Apes or, or Punks, but I think that it's an area that hasn't been explored yet, and I think it's something that's kind of takes NFTs to the next level as a thorough interest in NFTs uh, kind of word. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if it if it does ever catch, it might be important that you're holding on to not just your shovel but your gravel because the combination could be wild. Um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've done we've done enough of the NFT talk. Let's just uh, just a few more. Uh, and then we'll take some more community questions and we can chat here uh, again. And, and thank you so much for joining us here on Investorly, a conversation with the, the messages coming in. Everybody loves to hear from you. It's always a pleasure. We appreciate your time. Um, for those that don't know, or they're just hearing the first time, what was your aha moment with Chainlink? And have you questioned it? So my initial aha moment with Chainlink was like mid-2018. There was like a shill post on biz talking about like the enterprise smart contract use case of like, if you take an enterprise agreement, you know, you need, uh, you need a, a standardized signing mechanism via DocuSign. You need a connection to an enterprise backend, uh, like S, uh, uh, SAP. And you need, you know, these different, uh, external inputs to actually trigger your contract. And then that contract to make an effect in the real world and settle external payments or affect real world systems needs outputs. And like, so like literally everything around this contract to even make it possible you need to use oracles. And, you know, this was before the Chainlink mainnet. Uh, this was, you know, before most of DeFi. And so oracles, you know, it was basically oracleized. A centralized oracle was like pretty much what existed then. So like that kind of opened my eyes of like, okay, well, pretty much every smart contract use case is just better or it can only be possible because of oracles. And so uh, ever since then, that thesis has really only been validated Really, we haven't seen anything going. Hmm, maybe oracles aren't actually needed anymore. <laughs> like it's it's only a continuation of that thesis. And so, uh, particularly like in terms of like you know the enterprise smart contract stack hasn't necessarily happened yet. Not on like a public permissionless chain, but more so like on these permission chains. But those never ever never take off because you know they don't have a network effect. Nobody wants to join someone else's permission controlled chain. So that's something that's kind of a part of the multi year thesis of like. As mass adoption happens, you know, these types of use cases will start happening. And so, you know, it's never been a question in my mind of like the importance of oracles. I think that it's just one of these situations where um, what you want to happen uh, will happen further in the future than you think. But once it does happen, it'll happen much faster than you think. And that could be applied to many different things, you know, adoption, market price, whatever. So it's kind of always been kind of a long term type uh, objective uh, in terms of Chainlink. Chainlink's like a long-term project in a sea of short-term kind of hype-fueled Ponzi yields. It's not everything, but, you know, it's kind of a disconnect. But in terms of like what Chainlink's trying to achieve, I mean, it's it's achieving it. It's just, it's, it's going to be a journey. Absolutely. And that vision is um, to have a long-term vision and something that is so, uh, you know, short-term kind of rapid-fire uh, volatility is, uh, wow. Yeah, it takes quite a vision indeed uh, for the whole Chainlink team and not only them, but also UCLG. 
which brings us up to the future of Chainlink. And that is uh, what every Chainlink Marine wants to know about, learn more about, understand, which is uh, link token staking. What exactly is link staking and how does it uh, solidify and secure the Chainlink network? Yeah, so Chainlink staking is effectively a way to introduce an additional layer of crypto economic security to Chainlink Oracle networks. So this effectively evolves uh, link tokens being locked up and used as collateral in order to back Oracle services. And if the node operators don't perform based on what they agreed to, based on a service level agreement, then that capital can get slashed and basically uh, revoked and then reallocated. So it basically is an additional layer of basically disincentivizing nodes from being malicious and incentivizing proper operations. Uh, the notable impact is in terms of like the economics, it kind of very much shifts uh, how Link is used in the network being basically used as collateral. It becomes the right to earn fees, user fees within the Chainlink network. Uh, so it's kind of a substantial state, potential change in the tokenomics. And it's um, that's something that uh, Sergey talked about in a presentation earlier this year that's an initial version is being worked on and rolled out in the coming year. And, you know, this is something uh, just like every chain like Oracle service scale up over time. But I think having like a first step towards this future evolution of the chain like economics is like a very important step. And so, you know, there's still more details on like the specifics, what the program uh, will look like. But I think it's like a huge shift in the security of the chain like network. So it can scale into the trillions of dollars secured. And it's key for the economics of the network kind of uh, seeing Link getting locked up and being used to uh, directly back Oracle services. So it's that's kind of why people people post a picture of a stake under every single Chainlink tweet is because they're very excited for this. As all of us are, indeed. Uh, so we've, uh, CLG, we've also noticed um, that you've gotten pretty close to the Bancor team. And Bancor is obviously the decentralized exchange and decentralized uh, protocol. Um, or, or a DeFi protocol, uh, and uh, you done uh, you did the presentation when they talked about uh, Bancor version three, which will be coming uh, probably in the next month. Um, but there was actually a tweet from uh, one of the team members of the Bancor team, and it reads: "We are also looking to integrate with Chainlink staking, as we have large amounts of link tokens in our protocol. Is there anything you can comment on this?" Nothing additionally on top. I know there, there was a Twitter Spaces stream today with Banker and Linkpool. I wasn't able to tune in, unfortunately, so they may have actually touched this. Uh, but as, as far from like what I know, I don't know if there's any other dynamic, but I think it's an interesting synergy in terms of how uh, Bancor can stake Link or staked Link could be used in Bancor, um, super fluid collateral style. So I think there's synergies there, and I think it kind of remains to be seen, kind of plays out precisely over time. Thank you, Danny, uh, for those kind of ideas. And anyone listening that's thinking about the idea of chain link staking, there's been, uh, you know, obviously it's been out there, the talk of it, it's coming this year. Everyone's been excited for for more than just this year. You know, when I first started learning about chain link, I remember about hearing, wow, staking when it comes and all these things. And now there's always new things on the horizon and coming. Um, we haven't had a chance to just touch on it. And so I guess my last question to you, Chainlink God, and I'll I'll ask for some final questions from the community uh, if you want to send them in or, or a request, we'll try to get you up here before we finish up. But Chainlink uh, God, just can you p possibly explain to us when you hear the letters CCIP and we understand cross-chain interoperability, uh, you know, CCIP pro protocol product, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so CCIP, the best way to see it is kind of, it's like an open source standard for smart contracts being able to communicate with smart contracts on other blockchains. So it's kind of a simpler way to put it. It's kind of, the, it's like the layer zero of the blockchain ecosystem. There's a project by that name, but it's more of like the fundamental concept of being a layer zero, of being like the substrate glue between every blockchain network where chain like oracles are able to securely uh, validate and uh, transmit a message from one blockchain to another. And that message may be about moving tokens to another chain. That could be about uh, tokens plus a message about what to do with those tokens. Uh, it's really about creating a more interoperable and more interconnected ecosystem so that uh, a whole a whole new world of cross-chain smart contracts be, can be created. But really, in my mind, 
CCIP basically means finally secure cross-chain bridges is really what comes to my mind. Love that. Thank you for that. All right. So let's just take a couple more questions. Danny, we'll do some rapid fire uh, when we're done. And this one comes from Baron. Thank you, Baron. Uh, so Chainlink price feeds are free. How do you plan to generate revenue? Well, first, I would say the assumption there is wrong. Yeah. Yeah, Chainlink price feeds aren't free. So when you go on the data.chain.link website and you see all the sponsors, those are paying users. Uh, I think it's the system of how kind of payments work for price feeds. I think that will become more clear over time, uh, particularly probably with staking. Uh, but effectively, over time, as, as the Chainlink price feeds get more adopted, the users share in the costs more. And so that's how some Chainlink price feeds are already profitable without the need for a subsidy. You know, that wouldn't work if you know, users didn't pay. Uh, but just in terms of like network revenue, you know, VRF generates fees, Keepers generates fees, and I think CCIP will generate a significant amount of, of revenue. And that, that revenue doesn't, you know, go to Chainlink Labs, it goes to the node operators and, you know, eventually goes to the stakers as well. So I think there's a lot of revenue opportunity. Uh, and I think Chainlink price fees is like one vertical of that. Perfect. One more that I was, uh, I've been sent in the messages. And again, thank you to everyone that has submitted some questions. We really enjoy giving the opportunity to the community to also participate. And this one comes from Ross. Uh, so thank you, Ross. Chainlink uh, kind of goes around the CCIP conversation. Chainlink provides multiple services um, with CCIP on the way. Are there other products or services coming to your mind that you think would be valuable for Chainlink to provide in the future? I mean, there's ones we know about in terms of like Deco, which is uh, zero knowledge proof. So you can basically Oracle nodes can, uh, or rather users and data providers can privately attest to data. And then that data can, that proof of that data could be put on chain. So basically it's, you can use data and smart contracts, but that data is kept private. I think that's a huge use case in terms of getting enterprises onboarded, getting enterprise data used in smart contracts and the creation of de- a decentralized identity and uh, privacy preserving KYC. You know, whether you like KYC or not, it's a enterprises need it in order to be onboarded. And so, you know, if we, if we need KYC for them to get onboarded, might as well be in a way that's not horribly privacy compromising <laughs> effectively. So I, I think, I think privacy will be a huge next step for blockchains after scalability. And I think Chainlink will help a lot in terms of the inputs and outputs there. So I think there'll be a bit major push there. And I think, I mean, there's other things like fair sequencing, uh, barely ordering transactions in order to mitigate the harmful effects of MEV or the ability of miners to reorder transactions arbitrarily. Uh, that's something that's being worked on with Arbitrum uh, for their rollup. And I think in general, uh, just using Chainlink Oracle nodes for generalized off-chain compute. So a- any computation that's too expensive to do on a blockchain or just uh, not scalable enough or just not uh, expressive enough, you could do it in an Oracle network and prove the computations to a smart contract. So you know, the most realistic approach of this is like Chainlink nodes running the validators of a rollup. So if an enterprise needs to deploy a blockchain, you know, they just basically hire some Chainlink nodes and then they run the validators for their rollup. And then that rollup is secured by Ethereum or by another chain, uh, but operated by these Chainlink nodes, uh, the execution environment. So that's more of like a technically nuanced one. But I think in the future, that'll play a massive use case uh, for Chainlink. Yeah, no, I, I I know it's it's it gets more technical, but just hearing some of these terms, some of the words, uh, at least puts it in in the listeners' uh, mind to at least start to think about these things as we move forward over a longer period of time. I know I said that was it. I'm gonna go one more because I think it's important, uh, and I'm gonna take this question that Luciano you sent. Thank you for it. I'm just gonna morph it around a little bit because he. The question is essentially around um, D protocols such as band and so forth and asking, uh, can you tell us about the difference between, um, let's say, a project like band or any other Oracle project and potentially the competitiveness of Chainlink against these projects? So effectively, it's like, what is Chainlink doing superior to every other Oracle project and any other out there for anyone listening right now to know why they should choose Chainlink uh, as their Oracle network? or a provider? I think there's a multitude of reasons. I think the most obvious is that Chainlink is just the most time-tested and battle-proven. Uh, you know, Chainlink has consistently and reliably delivered accurate data on chain, even during extreme network congestion and market volatility. So, you know, it's an Oracle network that you know works and that you know is already used by the largest protocols. And so, therefore, it has a significant network effect of basically this whole ecosystem of users 
or have already proven the reliability of Chainlink. And so, you know, are you going to choose and take on the risk of some uh, unknown and little used Oracle protocol? Or are you going to use the industry standard? And the answer is you're going to use the industry standard. And not just because it's been proven, but because of Chainlink's economies of scale, where every additional user lowers the cost for every uh, existing user. So that's kind of a network effect. Uh, so, you know, are you going to take on the risk of using a potentially riskier and lower quality Oracle and pay more for it? Or are you going to use the industry standard, pay less for it, and your protocol is secured by nodes that already secure significant amounts of value? So it's just when you're a protocol looking at what Oracle you want to use, you know, this is just one domain. There's there's a lot of other reasons, too, when it comes to service diversity, when it comes to uh, just the ease of integration and the support the Chainlink Labs team gives when onboarding. Uh, there, there's a lot of different reasons. Uh, when it comes to price feeds, Chainlink's the industry standard. There's kind of no disputing that, really. really. There's no reason to use a lower quality Oracle there. Um, and because of that, Chainlink's expanding to these other market verticals as well that most Oracles aren't even touching yet. Uh, keepers, the VRF, uh, you know, uh, cross-chain interoperability. And if they are, it's because Chainlink is. And they want you know some of the Chainlink pie, but they usually can never really fully catch up because Chainlink's network effect is just accelerating at a faster rate than they are. You know, Chainlink's growing exponentially. Other protocols may be growing, but they're growing linearly. So, you know, they won't ever be able to catch up. So there, there's a lot more technical reasons I can give for each specific project, but just at a broad level, it comes down to the network effects and uh, economies of scale. Perfect. And I think it's so important because uh, the technical conversation is one that's also vastly important uh, and specifically people and investors and Chainlink Marines that have been, you know, around for a while um, and they want more and more. And you want to dive into those deeper conversations of what the future can hold and where we're going to go. What we've been able to do now in these conversations is Danny likes to do rapid fire. So I'm going to give it to Danny to finish us off. Danny, why don't you send us home here? Thanks a lot, Mike. And I, I wanted to add, uh, definitely subscribe to our, our weekly newsletter in addition to our uh, weekly podcasts that come out, uh, not only live here, but also recorded podcasts that we record live on here. We have our weekly newsletters that, that drop every Monday. Uh, CLG, thanks thanks so much for joining us here. I did want to add to your uh, fantastic explanation there of um, the basically the chain link versus the competitors. And when you don't understand something, you don't say, oh, I'm just going to go bing it. You say no. I'm going to go. Go- I'm going to Google it, right? Because Google is the industry standard. That's what Chainlink is. So I hope that maybe clarifies. Uh, I don't understand crypto the way I explain it to them. Uh, but CLG, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Absolutely, and I appreciate the kind comments. Is there one thing you do in your daily routine that has contributed to your success? Maybe it's more like a weekly routine. I mean, kind of a continuous thing. But I would say always reading. I mean, my browser tabs is literally at infinity because I have a lot of things in the backlog I want to read, but like never stop learning. So like if you find something interesting that you don't understand, you know, look it up, see, see what that actually, that term actually means and kind of dive down the rabbit hole for as long as you're able to. So, you know, that's not necessarily a routine thing, but it's like when you come across it, then, you know, you need to allocate some amount of time if you really want to expand your knowledge. I love it. It's fantastic. Are you a morning, afternoon, or evening person? Definitely an evening person. I've, I mean, it's kind of changed over time, <laughs> but um, I'm a bit more of an, a night owl, whether I like it or not. And uh, you may not answer this, but where are you originally from? Uh, not a pond, but somewhere in the Earth region, <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> okay, uh, that's fair. Uh, who invested in you early to get to where you are today? I'd say it's kind of cliche, but I would definitely say my parents like definitely supported me a lot uh, in terms of just like, you know, getting first job and basically throwing everything into this crypto funny money. And they're like, yeah, sure. (laughs) Just in terms of like my parents knew about Ethereum before I knew about it. It's like they were very kind of supportive from day one, even like when uh, I dropped out of college, like, you know, to kind of just pursue this, you know, they, they were full on supportive. So like they definitely helped push me forward. That's amazing. Support network is uh, absolutely everything in in anyone's success. Next question. Besides Sergey, who would you like to be your mentor, if anyone? That's a tricky one. Um, Living or dead, actually. That that makes it trickier. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We'll just stick to living then. (laughs) I think it'd be interesting to like 
just be able to continuously pick Vitalik's brain. Like, I don't think anyone's brain really works like Vitalik's does. And so just like being able to like kind of pick at it like an Oracle, I think would be incredibly useful. Perfect. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's uh, Vitalik Buterin, the co-founder of Ethereum. Has anyone ever asked you for an autograph? If so, any bizarre areas that you've signed? I think so, but honestly, I don't, I don't re really remember. It's kind of becomes a blur at times. <laughs> so not a great answer there. Okay, that's fair. And last question for me, what's your go-to drink? Mm, that's a good one. I would say like in terms of like alcoholic, I would just generally go to it like an old fashioned, but uh, yeah. <laughs> any, any specific bourbon whiskey? No, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm like too experienced yet. Unfortunately, I'm still, still a young, a young uh, tadpole. We'd like to thank Chainlink God and the community for a great conversation. The Investorly Podcast is brought to you by Dayslice, our home for all scheduling, payment, and website solutions in one place. Learn more today and sign up for free at dayslice.com. To stay informed of our community-driven podcasts and receive our insightful weekly newsletter, subscribe at investorly.substack.com. Investorly, empowering you to invest early in yourself.